every location, you know, states and local governments, things can vary a lot. Our country is big, it's complicated, and it's very diverse. So there are some parts of this country where it's been very difficult to pass protections for LGBTQ people at any level of government. And in other parts of the country, we have very thorough, excellent, comprehensive protections. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 20th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Isha now continues her conversation with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Welcome back. Hi, it's great to be back with you. When we started this series on outcasting, Donald Trump was still president, and he was pretty unfriendly to the idea of LGBTQ equality. When Joe Biden took office, he began almost immediately to reverse a number of the Trump administration's anti-LGBTQ policies. Can you give us an overview? Uh, yes, that's really true. It's really true. Um, the The prior administration was just prolific in adopting policies to invite, usually it was discrimination based on religion, creating special rights to ignore the law for religious reason. And anti-LGBTQ bias was among the key factors driving those policies. The first day or so of the Biden administration, uh, the, the new president issued a series of executive orders that reversed many of the prior administration's discriminatory policies. And these included commitments to equality rules in the new administration, to updating and revising the rules and rescinding many of the discriminatory rules that had been put in place by the prior administration. And also the new administration or the new president issued an executive order rescinding some of the executive orders that the prior president had put in place. For example, an executive order that we successfully challenged that uh, aimed to ban workplace trainings about race discrimination and sex discrimination in the federal workforce or uh, in places where federal dollars were paying for work to be done. Uh, that work should be done in a non-discriminatory way, and there should be some training to help people understand what discrimination is and how to stop it. The prior president had attempted to outlaw that and to, to, uh, to censor speech about racism and the history of racism in this country and sexism and its effects. And President Biden rescinded that executive order among, among his first actions. There's been a lot that has happened already uh, in the year since President Biden took office, including rescinding some of the bad policies and more often um, giving formal announcement of rulemaking procedures to reconsider and replace some of the discriminatory rules. So there's been some good progress in uh, just this first year, and there's a lot that still needs to be done as this administration takes shape and, and acts on some of those proposals. If a less LGBTQ supportive person is elected in 2024, can any of the pro-LGBTQ actions taken by the Biden administrations be undone? Well, unfortunately, yes. As a legal matter, yes. The um, 
the administration, whoever is leading an administration, has considerable authority to change policies. Policies can only be implemented consistently with law, including the Constitution, and every administration does its own analysis of what the law requires and what the law permits. We disagreed constantly with the legal reasoning that the prior administration gave for the rules that they issued, including the rules allowing trans young people to be excluded from programs or including access to restroom facilities, for example, and their policy about excluding trans folks from military service. We sued about that. I mean, we were, we were filing lawsuits all the time against the Trump administration because they implemented policies that we saw as being inconsistent with the the statutes that governed particular areas of activity and the constitution and were overtly discriminatory. And we, we sued all the time and we had a lot of success in court. Having success in court was certainly helpful, but as we've been discussing, you know, that signaling message is quite harmful. So if the next administration is led by somebody that like uh, former President Trump has anti-LGBTQ views or is brought to the White House by a coalition that includes lots of groups with anti-LGBTQ views, we need to expect that the good policies that we expect to come and to continue to come from the Biden administration would be at risk. It's not a guarantee of what would happen, of course, but each administration has considerable authority to issue rules and regulations, and they can change and they do change. Earlier in this series, we talked about the Equality Act, which would add LGBTQ people to the nation's civil rights laws as a protected category, along with race, national origin, and other categories of people who have been historically discriminated against and marginalized. This bill would provide us with comprehensive federal protections to LGBTQ people that we currently don't have. We don't want to rehash the entire discussion, but tell us briefly what the Equality Act would do. Sure. Well, the Equality Act sets out to write into existing federal law some protections for LGBTQ people based on what the Supreme Court decided in a case about employment discrimination, a case called Bostock, that said that our current federal employment non-discrimination law, which prohibits discrimination based on sex, the only sensible way to understand that sex discrimination protection is that it also covers two categories, two subsets of sex discrimination, if you will, uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation and discrimination based on gender identity or transgender status. And the reasoning the Supreme Court used uh, was similar to the reasoning we've used in cases arguing this going back many years now, that one's sexual orientation is based on one's own sex in relation to the sex of another person. There's no way to understand what sexual orientation is unless you take a person's own sex into account. And similarly, with respect to gender identity or transgender status, this characteristic is about whether a person presents their sex or their gender in a way that is consistent with what society might expect or the way they understand themselves, that their understanding of their own maleness or femaleness is inherently related to the idea of a person's sex or gender. So again, the concept has no meaning if you don't consider what the person's 
sex is. And so currently under federal law, the employment statute, the federal law about housing, the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and the Education Amendments of 1972 that have to do with um, federally funded schools, all of those federal laws preclude or prevent sex discrimination now. The Equality Act aims to write explicitly into the statute this understanding that sex discrimination protections include within them protections against sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. And the Equality Act would add to that protection against sex or sexual orientation discrimination in jury service. And then the Equality Act would add protections against sex discrimination or discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity to two important areas of federal law that do not currently prohibit sex discrimination. That's the law that applies in places of public accommodation, and we can talk in a minute about what that is, um, and also in programs that receive federal funding. Right now, the federal funding law prohibits discrimination based on race or color or national origin, and the law about public accommodations prohibits discrimination based on race, color, national origin, or religion, but neither of those laws prohibit sex discrimination. And what that has meant is that um, in those uh, places, in those services uh, or programs, uh, women could be excluded or treated differently or charged more money or excluded because there was no protection against sex discrimination. The other th- important thing that the Equality Act sets out to do is to broaden what counts as a place of public accommodation in federal law. The original Civil Rights Act that covers places of public accommodation was passed back in 1964, and it was a somewhat new idea at that time. Not completely new, but it was a somewhat new idea to uh, propose that the federal laws would protect people when they're seeking certain types of services. For example, traveling from place to place and seeking a meal at a restaurant or a lodging at a hotel or being able to access a place of entertainment, you know, a stadium or a movie theater or a bowling alley. Uh, Remember, this was back in 1964, so some of our places of public amusement are a little bit different today. But the idea was to try to dismantle racial segregation in parts of the country where racial segregation was the law and make it much easier for people, and in particular African Americans, to, to travel and to have access to lodging and meals and the ability to get from place to place and for commerce to move more smoothly because there weren't barriers that excluded people because of their race. So it's a, a much more limited category of types of business than what has come to be protected under the laws of many states. Um, under the laws of many states today, we also prohibit discrimination in retail businesses, in various types of transportation services, banking, 
various types of professional services, such as, you know, lawyers and accounting, actually, and um, a range of other settings where people are paying money to receive some sort of a good or a service, and also agencies that generally have opened their doors to the general public. So nonprofit agencies that provide services generally to, to anyone, their doors are open, and that makes them a place of public accommodation. So the Equality Act says there should be an updating and expansion of federal law to recognize the public marketplace as it exists today and to add protection against sex, sexual orientation, or gender identity discrimination to that whole expanded coverage. The coverage would then be for the full range of those characteristics. People of color should be protected, people who are newer immigrants, discrimination based on color, and also sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity. If the Equality Act is enacted, will it be able to address any of the issues raised by the anti-LGBTQ state laws we were talking about earlier? I think, yes, it would help quite a lot. I mean, just as one example, in the area of employment, where we have seen state bills to restrict access to restrooms, for example, state of North Carolina, if I remember correctly, last year passed a couple of new restrictions, uh, rules about access to restrooms. Other states have started uh, considering some of those restrictions again. So if we have a federal law that is clear that transgender Uh, folks are to be respected according to their gender identity, then I think that would help put a stop to some of those efforts, uh, you know, where those restrictions make it it really difficult for people to get through the workday. You know, if you can't can't access the restroom, you're not going to be able to get through a day of work. So, um, that's that's just one example. I think um, there are some state-level attacks that would not be blocked by the Equality Act. And one example there might be the states that have attempted to restrict the ability of a person to update their gender identity, um, I'm sorry, their their, uh, identity documents to to reflect appropriately uh, what their gender identity is. And that's generally a matter of state law, and uh, the, the Equality Act does not attempt to take over that area and and federalize it. So the Equality Act would not solve all problems in all settings, but it addresses many uh, areas in which people are experiencing discrimination. So it would certainly be a big help. Another thing to recognize here is that federal law as it is written now, for example, about employment, doesn't apply to all employment settings. Uh, Businesses that have more than 15 employees are covered by the federal law, but smaller businesses are not covered by the federal law, and and the Equality Act is not set out to change that. So federal law covers lots of things, and it would be very important to have LGBTQ people included and protected under federal law. Uh, It would be particularly important for LGBTQ people of color to have consistent protections and not to face a situation where they might be protected based on one type of discrimination against who they are, but not another type of discrimination based on who they are. We should have consistent legal standards for these different types of discrimination, you know, so that people are protected, everybody understands what the law is, and the law is the same for everyone. Would the Equality Act be able to counteract policies that might be enacted by a future president or other federal officials who might not support equality for LGBTQ people? Yes. Writing into the federal statutes these protections 
would be helpful if a future administration made arguments, and we heard some of these during the Trump administration, that the reasoning the Supreme Court used with respect to employment in the Bostock case should not apply the same way to, say, housing or healthcare or education, different areas of federal law that include protection against sex discrimination. The Trump administration argued and was expected that they would continue to argue that each area is different. And there might be reasons, say, with respect to housing, that discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity is somehow different. And we thought those arguments made no sense, that the the logical understanding of discrimination based on sex would be the same in any context. But you know, a future administration might make all sorts of arguments that could be foreclosed by passage of the Equality Act. And that's among the many reasons that uh, the Equality Act is considered so important. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. The Equality Act wasn't supported by the Trump administration, but it is by the Biden administration. What's the current status of the bill? Well, the Equality Act was considered in the House of Representatives last year, and it had uh, very strong support in the House and was passed over to the Senate. The Senate held a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Testimony was taken, and the bill is now still with that committee. So the next steps probably would be that the Senate Judiciary Committee members would vote on whether that bill should then advance to the floor and be considered and debate. Now, you may have noticed that there's been lots of activity in the Senate, lots of discussion and wrangling about a number of other bills that are ahead of the Equality Act in the queue, if you will. There's been a consideration of a number of different funding bills. There's been consideration of proposals about police reform and discussions of voting rights and multiple other issues about which there's lots of public interest and concern and wrangling within the Senate about whether there's enough support to get those different bills to the floor for debate and discussions about the filibuster and whether the filibuster rules should be changed in some ways to allow more discussion, debate, and voting on these various measures. So the Equality Act is in a similar situation to some of those bills. There's lots of discussion going on, lots of public discussion and lots of private discussion going on among senators about the multiple different parts of that bill and also about whether the Senate rules should be changed and how many Republicans might support the bill if it were to come forward. So the current status does a little shifting and changing, and it's not always done in the public eye, but we don't know if or when the Senate may um, the Judiciary Committee may decide to take a vote on the bill and whether and when it might come to the floor of the Senate for public debate. There's an alternative bill, the Fairness for All Act. What's the difference between that and the Equality Act? 
Well, there are quite a few differences between the Equality Act and the Fairness for All Act. I think the biggest difference is that the Fairness for All Act proposes that there should be a relationship between equal treatment for LGBT people in some settings with continued freedom to discriminate by religious institutions in some other settings. So I would describe the Fairness for All Act as a bill that was put together with considerable thought and effort by some quite conservative religious groups that do support equal treatment of LGBT people in quite a few settings, specifically commercial settings, various types of business and public settings, but they strongly support continued freedom of religious institutions to discriminate for religious reasons against LGBTQ people in programs that receive federal funding, private educational settings, for example, religious schools, and in some other contexts where religiously affiliated or or faith-based agencies provide various types of services to the public with public money and want to be able to continue to provide those services according to their religious doctrine, which can include discrimination against LGBTQ people or inclusion of certain amounts of religious teaching that some LGBTQ people experience as being very stigmatizing and and hurtful and make it difficult for people to accept services in a context with those teachings guiding the way the services are delivered. There are many other things in the two bills, but I think the big concept that distinguishes the two is whether fairness is understood to mean that religious institutions retain their rights to discriminate for religious reasons with public funding, or whether public funding means non-discrimination, as has been the case for a long time in American law, but LGBT people were not included in the protections that we've had with federal funding in the past. So I think that's one of the big principles that distinguishes the two bills. Here in New York, a law protecting LGBT people, the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act, or SONDA, was passed in 2002. But at the time, it seemed politically impossible to include protections for trans people. And it wasn't until 16 years later that GENDA was passed. That's the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act. So in 2002, a lot of LGBT people were thrilled to be protected by SONDA, but a lot of trans people were probably thinking, hey, what about us? So it seemed to be a pragmatic strategy to get the legislation that was possible in 2002 and then continue the fight to include trans people. But some people might have thought that we should have taken a more purist approach and refused any legislation until all LGBTQ people could be protected. Talk to us about those strategies. Well, I think it's exciting and reassuring to think about how much has changed since 2002. And, you know, I'm speaking to you from California. And in California, I've been doing this work full time for quite a few years. And in the mid 90s, there was very limited protection at the state level in California. But in the years that followed, there was a steady step by step progress of adding new protections uh, sort of you know one by one or sometimes in a sometimes in a batch and we had a similar progression that there was sexual orientation protection added to the employment law first and then gender identity protection was added later and it was added 
originally by reference to a hate crimes law, and then the, then the words were written in explicitly. I mean, there's a funny piece of history in California that there was opposition to adding sexual orientation protection to the education code. As I remember, you know, the vote fell one vote short when that proposal was was brought to the floor. But then the bill was changed to add a cross-reference to the hate crimes law, and it passed, and it ended up then protecting against sexual orientation and against gender identity discrimination. You know, we talk about uh, lawmaking as uh, like sausage making. The process can be kind of a mess sometimes, but sometimes the end result is quite delicious. I think that's true. And I think every location, you know, states and local governments, things can vary a lot. Our country is big, it's complicated, and it's very diverse. So there are some parts of this country where it's been very difficult to pass protections for LGBTQ people at any level of government. And in other parts of the country, we have very thorough, excellent, comprehensive protections. I think today it would be absolutely unacceptable to attempt to pass a non-discrimination bill that left trans people or gender non-conforming or non-binary people out of those protections because we've come so far as a movement and also in particular because the attacks against trans folks have been so persistent and intense that some of the most urgent need is among our trans and gender nonconforming members of our families and communities. So things have really changed from where they were some 10, 15, 20 years ago when different political calculus was made. I do think in some places we go step by step and one step leads to the next, but it it doesn't it's not necessarily a step that says some people get protection and some people who need protection are left out. It may be we address this area of law and then that area of law and one one step forward builds to the next, but it's not at the expense of the smallest most vulnerable minority among us. It's quite important I think these days that we move together as a movement. And and one thing I would add about that, when a number of couples really launched us into the modern chapter of the fight for the freedom to marry, and our movement as a whole had to rise to the occasion and deal with the bills in states and then the constitutional amendment battles, the initiatives to, to limit the freedom to marry, as a movement, we said, look, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation here. We have, to, we have to win this fight. Some people thought it was the most important issue. Some people thought it was not, but it was the issue that we had to deal with for a period of time. And many trans folks within our communities said, but you know, our situation, we're terribly vulnerable. We, we need to be working on other things. The movement as a whole didn't really have a lot of choice because we were being so attacked on marriage. Well, we've succeeded in that fight. And so I think it's there are multiple different movement and moral calls that protecting trans members of our communities is, is a top priority. So I think many of us wouldn't even consider working on a non-discrimination measure that was not trans-inclusive at this point. I can't imagine folks doing that. We're out of time, but we'll continue this next time. Thanks, Jenny. My pleasure. That's it for this 20th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. 
This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.